The inaugural issue of the Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly Journal has now come off the press and is on its way to bookstores and LARB members nationwide. The LARB Quarterly Journal realizes our evolution into print, and today on the podcast we'll feature not one but two segments to give you a sense of the contents. A conversation with Maria Bustios and Cord Jefferson on Maria's essay on the book Racecraft, and a reading by Ander Monson from his essay on his experience at the Arizona Renaissance Festival. Print is not only alive and well, but thriving, as readers continue to have a profound appetite to not only read curated, edited, smart, and fun opinion, written by the best writers and thinkers of our time, but to hold it in hand. The LARB Quarterly Journal will feature exclusive, previously unpublished content, including reviews, essays, original poetry and short stories, artist profiles, features, and more. Let's have a listen. Welcome back to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, soon to be the former home of LARB HQ, currently in a state of dismantlement. I'm here with, across from the couch on which sit uh, two writers, Maria Bustios, who writes not just for the LARB, but for the New Yorker, the All, and many other venues, who wrote a an essay on a book called Racecraft for this first issue of the Los Angeles Review of Books Print Quarterly. Next to her, we have Cord Jefferson, who is the West Coast editor of Gawker. Maria, first, before you tell me why you wanted Cord to be here with you, tell me why, tell me what's exciting about this book. What is Racecraft? Racecraft is a really unusual uh, text of sociology written by two sisters, Karen and Barbara Fields. Uh, one is an historian and the other a sociologist. And they are um, Afro-American writers who sought to reframe the question of how race manifests in American society in this whole new way. And I found this book so exciting that when I was asked to contribute to this um, fantastic new periodical that I'm so excited about, uh, I was just delighted that this you know, I suggested this as a good topic and it was accepted as a topic. And so I was able to really uh, write a big, long, meaty essay about it. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed it very much. Now, I, I believe I heard you say that maybe over email that Cord is the ideal person for you to talk about racecraft with. Why? Yes. Well, two reasons. Well, three reasons. One is he's like a rocking writer who is so amazingly talented and great. The one other one is he's very well versed in the literature of race. He writes on race really beautifully and frequently. And the third reason is he already has the kind of mindset of racecraft, I think, in that he doesn't, as a writer, seem to define himself very specifically by any particular constituency, but rather seeks to address his audience and readership as a human being rather than as like a black man or whatever role the writing seeks to assign to him. He never really is roped down by that. And so he was the first person I thought of to talk about this with. Cord, when did you begin? When's the first time you wrote about race? My interest in writing about race, my interest in exploring race probably um, came about in college. I was mm-hmm. a sociology major uh, at school, at a very white school. Um, and uh, that was a very, um, I think that college in, was a very important part in me sort of learning who I was as a, as a human being. As, and, and I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer back then, but I knew that the most interesting um, sociology classes I took uh, explored these these ideas of race and explored um, what it meant to be a black person in America. And 
that was a time in my life when I was really struggling with, with what I was and I was struggling with, um, how I wanted to, um, present myself to the world. I was struggling with, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not I wanted to present myself to the world as, uh, a black person or as a biracial person, mm -hmm. um, or something else altogether. And so after I left school, um, I was still struggling with these ideas. I mean, to be honest, I still struggle with these ideas. Uh, but professionally, I think that I've been sort of consistently writing about race and consistently writing about, um, the politics of race and, and what America means when it talks about race for, I would say probably six years now. No, no, maybe, maybe five years. Uh, and, um, I used to work at The Root, which is a, a an African American publication in in uh in Washington D.C., an offshoot of Slate, um, and started writing really heavily about uh, black culture and and black politics there, and then haven't really stopped uh, since. Who were some of the names you remember reading early on, writing on race directly or indirectly that that got you that got you yourself onto that subject? What what are some people who opened your eyes to how race could be written about? Um, I mean, you have standards that you read in sociology courses like W.B. Du Bois and, and that kind of thing. But, um, to this day, my favorite black writer and, and to me, the, one of the, I think probably most interesting thinkers about race that, that I still read is James Baldwin. I'm, I'm a huge Baldwin fan and kind of, um, he, the way that he thinks about race, I think was so ahead of his time, uh, for, 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 for when he was working in the, in the sixties for, um, a gay black man to kind of uh, it, it, what I find interesting about Baldwin's uh, about Baldwin's life and about Baldwin's work and about the way he thought about race is that he was very much of uh, he had his feet in both camps. It was very much uh, a very strong pro black idea, and and he, he he sort of marched in Washington and he was there at these rallies, but then he was also so adamant about the fact that he didn't want to be defined by his race only, and he didn't want to be defined by his sexuality. And he was a human being uh, before that he was a black human being, before he was a gay human being. And so to couple those ideas in, is, to me, really radical. Uh, back then when so many people were using their race or gender to define themselves and define who they were and present themselves to the world, for somebody to... Um, understand that and work with that, but also work outside of that to be, uh, something separate from that, I think was for me, um, hugely formative. And, and it's still, it's still something that I, that I love about him even nowadays. I, re I returned to him too. And I'm, I'm not as familiar as I'd like to be, but there was that one piece <laughs> that the black boy looks at the white boy. Is that what it's called? His piece about Mailer? Am I right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I haven't read that in a long, long time. Dude, I love that thing. Yeah. And it's so kind of like this. Um, it reminds me, again, of the fields and of your work. I kind of see a thread in this of people who are able to assume the authority to take on whatever they want. Mm -hmm. You know, like like Baldwin had absolutely no trouble putting himself on a level with Mailer and addressing him and his concerns with, like, absolute authority and, and, a, and a, on a level sort of uh, discourse you know, that, that is just so fantastic and inspiring. And it's like, I think a lot of writers even today, if you're too much a black writer or too much a gay writer, mm -hmm. then maybe you wouldn't go after 
some, you know, I'm trying to think of the equivalent of some Jonathan Franzen or something like that. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, I'm only allowed to say, but because I'm in my little yeah. feminist bubble or my little black bubble. These are not my topics. I don't have an opinion about this. It's like really electrifying when you see somebody like Baldwin who had such elegance and grace and causticity yeah. and was able to turn to the full Klieg likes of his intellect on to Norman Mailer. I just love that thing. Yeah. And there was, anyway. I mean, I, uh, one of my favorite books of Baldwin's is Giovanni's room. And, mm-hmm. uh, sort of after reading it, going back and reading about the history of that book and reading about how, um, shocked people were about by this black man writing about a white gay man, you know, he's, and he's not, he's not, he's not covering what he should be covering, you know, <laughs> like, like you're, you shouldn't be writing about these kinds of things. Um, for multiple reasons, you should not be writing about these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that that freedom, as a writer uh, is something that um, far too many writers, I think, nowadays forego. And I think that um, for me, uh, working outside of that box, I don't ever want to be known as a black writer. That terrifies me. Uh, it terrifies mm-hmm. me that somebody would add that qualifier before what I do. Even though I write a lot about race, uh, if somebody were ever to describe me as, you know, Cord's a, Cord's a black writer, that's about black issues. I don't ever want to be that guy. This is I, exactly why I wanted you to come, because I think that that's true. Nobody mm-hmm. thinks that about you. Mm-hmm. And yet you speak with a lot of authority and you talk about your experiences. And I mean, boy, do I empathize with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only like, do I not want to be known as a, as a, a Hispanic writer, but as a woman, as this, as that, just like, like no, you mm-hmm. know, I'm. Like, I am a cultural critic, and if somebody wants to hire me to write about something that my opinions might be of value, then, like, go ahead. I'm a human being, you know, and I'll tell you. And maybe my experiences are relevant, like, with respect to whatever weirdo constituencies I belong to. They may come in as a relevant, you know, part of the discussion. But to seek to limit anybody by saying, like, well, you're, it's like saying, you know, you're black, so you wouldn't understand. Or you're a woman, so you don't understand these things. Like, that's exactly why we're such a mess. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love this book so much, because these women have come out and said, this thing is a construct. It doesn't exist. Yeah. We've invented this whole song and dance around a, a, a chimerical concept that it has to be propped up with sort of fake science. Mm. And now we're harming each other with it and limiting each other by it. And it, it's not helping. And that's, you know, it's a great, great message. And I don't know why it hasn't gained more currency. Yeah. And to me, one of the, one of the most elegant, one of the most elegant, um, Descriptions in the book is the title itself, and I, when I when I first heard racecraft, my mm. assumption was like, okay, they're they're going to say that race is a social construct, which is kind of well trod ground. I'm not really, I don't, I don't know how exciting that is, but uh, for anybody who who doesn't know, the racecraft is is supposed to um, be analogous to witchcraft, in that um, it's this it's this kind of spooky hoodoo <laughs> nonsense that that. Uh, that doesn't exist, and yet everybody operates um, in a way that it does exist. And I, I think that a, a passage that I that I've read in the book uh, is when they said that, that people people were kind of oh gosh, what how they put it? people were people were attempting to figure out how, uh, in retrospect, so many smart people believed in this nonsense that was witchcraft. And I think that um, for people who think about race uh, nowadays, I think that a difficult thing is is how have, have has such a modern 
smart society that, that is achieving such great things in so many ways still hung up on this nonsense that, that so many people know is know to be nonsense. There's, there's so much literature and then so, so much science uh, explaining why this is nonsense. And yet it seems like we are so far away from actually escaping this, escaping this problem. It, it sort of serves somebody's interests mm -hmm. to perpetuate an idea, that idea will persist. And I mean, I think that's true in any kind of sort of oppressive fairy tale. You know, it's the same, um, I mean, there are economic stories like this, the stories of women being weak, stories of, you know, having weak intellects, like all these things are like so similar. And all of a sudden reading this book really sort of crystallized and focused all this stuff for me. It's sort of um, a tool of oppression to create a fantasy that people will buy into so that somebody will benefit. There's always a solid benefit to somebody, you know, in the case of witchcraft, you know, you empower the church or you like go after your enemies or like the crucible, you know, yeah. somebody's going to benefit. There's like an agenda. And I mean, that's the one thing I think that I look forward to the fields as next work because they go into it a little bit, um, the sort of socioeconomic uh, ramifications of what this kind of institutionalized oppression has resulted in. And, but it could be expanded a lot more, I think. And I think that, uh, th this, the, the, the real gift of the book is that it's just sort of like kind of tearing off this notion that, you know, race is going to be a persistent, factor in our national life because it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. It can it has to be completely removed even from people who think of themselves as anti-racist. So that was I think like probably the most stimulating single takeaway. It's mm -hmm. like everybody's participating in this. Now, yeah. to clarify uh, Maria, we've been hearing a long time listeners will be thinking we've been hearing for so long so many books have argued that race doesn't exist. So I guess to clarify what's what's different about the way that racecraft argues that? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it you've already heard. Uh, you know, that like you can't tell the color of someone's skin from his DNA. Everybody knows that the bell curve is nonsense. You know, there all the all the sort of scientific precepts that have been hauled into support this idea have been discredited over and over and it and they keep coming up. Like one of the chapters in the book discusses um the DNA testing. There was a spurious guy who came up and said that he could tell race from DNA. It turns out to be false. So the same ideas keep getting churned up. And the way that they explain this is there's there there's a reason, there's a substrate of the reason that everybody wants to participate in this oppression and like sort of smash down everyone who's beneath him. And that is exists even in the people who are oppressed themselves, they mm -hmm. look for, they seek someone beneath them to oppress. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, it's more of a synthetic approach than actually some groundbreaking new thing. It's mm -hmm. like a lens to look through this thing in a different way from uh, the ways that you've looked at it before. But I think a lot of the reason why it comes off so sort of fresh and new is that these writers aren't looking to make some big new point or stake out a special new ground for themselves. Like the way I put it in the essay is like really more a matter of erasure. Mm. They're, they're getting rid of the, the, the whole agenda of the book is to get rid of ideas that, that are discredited and united into the sort of carapace over the truth. 
but they're not looking, you don't get the sense reading this book that they're looking to be some kind of, you know, media stars or anything like that. Mm. It's very workmanlike and, mm. and kind of matter of fact in a way that's just really appealing, clear, you know, very valuable, valuable, mm. valuable work. In what way do you hope for a book like Racecraft to to have an effect on society? I mean, it sounds like they make their arguments clearly, and they do it better than any other book of its type so far, perhaps. But someone who's who's reading Racecraft is probably not a racist. I'll I'll, I'll put it like that. I mean, what is the people who need to hear it? Would you would it would seem they're least reachable um, in the form of maybe a book or a book like this? Would you agree with that? I think that books are kind of a like a bellwether mm. and and can have an effect on the culture that way exceeds you know it's like throwing the stone in the pond kind of a thing mm. it's a really good stone in the pond i mean mm. after i read this book i'm like ha huh, this mm. is really cool and then i found out that like um Ta-Nehisi coates is all into it mm. i like couldn't believe it like all these people that i didn't have any idea you know it came to me through this guy sergio munoz a friend of mine who uh, has a radio show and he wanted me to come on his radio show and talk about this book and like, would I do it? And I was like, oh my God, the stack of books, you know, like, no, <laughs> I won't. But then I started reading and I thought, yes, I will. <laughs> now, reading Maria's essay, Cord, what, uh, what, what, did, what that she said got you to pick up Racecraft yourself and you started to read it. So what, what was yeah. it that she said that she highlighted? That What sense did you get from her description that this was a book you would want to read that would be important to you? Um, Maria talked a lot about, in her essay, she, she speaks to this idea that um, growing up as, as a Hispanic woman, she felt, I don't know if it's an obligation, an obligation to figure out a role. Um, and to figure out, uh, what kind of Hispanic person she was. Um, and in, she says, in, in racecraft, sort of, they, they touch on these ideas that people are, um, I, I don't know if they're, if they're touching on the ideas of creating identities for themselves, uh, and, and that we use race as, as ways to figure out who we are as human beings. Um, and I guess in, in sort of, the way that I've progressed in, in my life, when Maria reached out to me about, about reading Racecraft and doing this podcast, she, she touched on, uh, how I've written in the past about that when I was younger, blackness used to be very important to me and, and being, um, having people think and know that I was a black person and a proud black person was, was something that was really, uh, crucial to my life and, and crucial to me for, for, for a number of years in my childhood. But then one day I woke up and realized that I, in many ways, like my blackness or, or the blackness that I was trying to project to the world was, was a costume uh, and, and wasn't, wasn't authentic to who I actually was and how I actually felt about How things. would you project this blackness? What would be the devices to do that? I mean, in the very superficial ways that I think society looks, uh, looks at what, what race is uh, and the music that I listened to, uh, the way that I dressed, it's, uh, it was a very superficial understanding of race. Uh, because I think so much of society has a really superficial understanding of race. So, um, I listened to a lot of rap music. I joined the Black Students Union in high school. Um, I sagged my pants. It was, it was, it was, uh, like basically all the stereotypes that, that, that people think of when they think of what it means to be a black man was, was kind of my, my first introduction and my first attempt at 
being black because my mother, my mother is white. I don't know if I've, I've said that this far. I'm biracial. So, um, that may, that sort of added this extra element to, to my sort of difficult journey toward figuring out what I actually wanted to be. I need to talk more about that because like, I think, that, <sighs> I think that stuff is fun. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, but when you're a teenager and you have your tribe and, you know, you, you're allowed to participate, like, you know, you're partly black. So you, that's like an entrance card, you mm-hmm. know, and I have the same thing in like Hispanic culture. It's like you're, I'm allowed, right? Yeah. Because I know how to speak Spanish reasonably well and whatever. So I'm allowed to participate in this and I know kind of how to do that. And there are times when I will meet people and that's absolutely the best way. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what I touch on in the essay. It's like I, the way I wound up learning to deal with it in my life over a bazillion years is I would find out where I am and who I'm talking with and then figure out what language we speak together the best. What language am I reasonably fluent in that my interlocutors can actually come back at me? Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, right? It's like these are all um, – ways that people their languages really like the way you dress or the mm-hmm. music you listen to it's like a language it's like a a way of um arriving at common ground mutuality with somebody that i think is is healthy and good right i mean i think what happens to a lot of people in our situation who are like um are either biracial or like i am sort of hispanic american or whatever where you mm-hmm. like have a foot in all kinds of different camps like james baldwin did we were saying earlier like this is so human and real everybody has this somehow or other you know all those languages are valid and and i i i would like to have a more inclusive feeling about all of them rather than an exclusive feeling it's like you know when i was growing up it was kind of more like there weren't a lot of Hispanic people around. And so it's kind of like, I didn't have a strong relationship to that side of myself until I started traveling more. Like I traveled with my parents a lot in Latin America and stuff like that. And like learned different means of communicating uh, with all kinds of different people. And like, that's my ideal thing, right? If I could speak every language and convince anybody that I could, you know, communicate with that person, that would be great. You know, and sometimes I'm sure that that would mean turning into this whole other person, you know, like some shape shifting, whatever. That yeah, I think that I think what's interesting about your uh, situation, what's interesting about um, different minorities throughout throughout the country, is that uh, you, in theory, could potentially be a white person. I think that that's a really I think that that's a really interesting vantage point to be in mm-hmm. as as a minority in America is to be able to pass as white amongst white people mm-hmm. and to it's it's interesting you say you figure out who uh with whom you're speaking and that's how you sort of play that game is, is to is to read somebody and mm-hmm. then and then you come across as how you need to come across to to navigate that certain terrain. Um I think that that's fascinating and I think that uh, when I was younger and figuring it out, I'm, I was raised in, uh, overseas in Tucson, Arizona, but I wasn't raised in anywhere where there was a significant black population. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I didn't feel a real deep connection to quote unquote black culture, except for what ha- happened within, within my own home, you know, with, with my father and my older brothers. Uh, um, but I never, got the opportunity to not feel black, you know, because, mm-hmm. because 
no matter where I went, regardless of whether I was deeply connected to that culture, people looked at me and said, that's a black guy, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, some people peg me for a Cuban. Some people peg me for like Sicilian every now and again, but, 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 uh, and Middle Eastern every now and again, but, um, like in New York, yeah, in San Francisco, Puerto Rican. Yeah, exactly. In, in Tucson. In Tucson, it's like, this is a black guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, thing. yeah. So I think that for me, when I was talking about that, um, that sort of early, uh, early decision to, you know, uh, latch on to blackness or, or this, like I said, this very cheap understanding of what blackness was and, and what blackness should be. I think that that was me saying to myself, and I guess I've written about this in the past, is saying to myself that if everybody assumes that this is who I am, then I should just be this because this is what, this is what, yeah, it's, it's easier like this. If people well, are saying you're a black guy, like then that. I should just be a black guy, you know? And yeah. so I behaved the way that, you know, I, I, these people expected me to behave. And, and like I said, it wasn't until I got to, uh, my later teen years and then, and then in college when I, when I sort of realized that this was, this is not who I wanted to be. And then sort of figuring out that path, uh, has been, has been a, a new chapter all, all its own. The president wrote something <clears throat> not dissimilar to that. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I am, I guess this is what I am, right? Yeah. It's like, but I mean, he, I've always found it really interesting, like in reading the president's writing. I mean, he has an absolutely equal claim to being white. Yeah. It's completely 100% equal. But this culture would not accept him saying, I'm a white guy. He can say, I'm a black guy, but it's no more true than, you know, so the whole thing's crazy. But, like, it sort of depends on the context, because, like, I can, like, pass as white or whatever in certain contexts. But I remember, like, being in Minneapolis at one point in, like, the early 90s, I was doing doing business there, and um, in a very sort of white shoe area of Minneapolis, and I seriously was so terrified (laughs) You know, it's like, they all look the same as each other. Help me. Like, nobody even has brown hair. Like, there's never been anybody except for these. It's like, oh, my God. It's like, I thought, oh, my God, what are they going to do to me? They were fine. They were nice. (laughs) But, like, ran into some bar and ordered a martini. I mean, it's kind of like, it depends what every experience that we have contextualizes us in a different way. And I kind of think that that's what this book is really eye-opening about. And what I hope my essay kind of put across is every experience is full of all kinds of weird, vicissitudinal, bizarro things that are going to change your uh, sort of right to be there, what you can say, what you can't say. Can you swear? Can you like, you know, make a joke? Like, you know, who are you to these people? Are you going to make them uncomfortable if you, you know, say or express certain things? And I mean, we could be so much better human beings if we all understood each other on that basis. Like, you know, here the three of us are, each of us has like the most amazingly complex previous life with so many beautiful and sad and weird things that has happened to each one. And like, if we could just sort of understand each other, like three people in this like really bizarre condition that is human condition, we could, go so much farther if we didn't look to put each other in these little boxes and just say like, okay, just what was your life? What did you think? What happened to you? Who are we together? What are we going to figure out together? That's a good thing to make out of this time that we're spending. I mean, 
you know, that's the thing that excited me the most about the thing that, you know, why I wrote the essay is like, it it sort of opened a window for me onto the idea that people can be so much better to each other and so much more to each other just with this really simple thing of of acknowledging what we all already know is true. Equality. Mm -hmm. It's not a goal. It's Reality. I just love that. It's so simple. It's just, and it's a matter of being reminded. It's not something that you're learning. It's something you're being reminded of, but it's like being reminded of it so forcefully is so healthy and great, you know. I want to go back for a bit to what you were saying about finding the right language, literally or metaphorically, talking to somebody else, whoever you may be talking to. You reference an instance in your essay on racecraft where I believe it's a, it's a Chinese-American lady sitting on a bench and somebody walks up and says, Ni hao, and she responds, fuck you. Um, so, it so it's, it's so excessive. I mean, you, 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 you can understand. I haven't read racecraft. I've read your essay. And you can understand from the way you discuss that you can see where she's coming from, this lady who, who, who decided to uh, react violently, not, not literally, but have a violent emotional reaction to that. Uh, I was talking to Cord before you came over uh, about how I live in Koreatown, and partially I do that because I study Korean and Spanish, so it's you know a good practicing opportunity. I and say. I, but reading your essay, I was thinking, well, Jesus, every day I come up to a stranger and think, what language should I talk to this person based on their race? I mean, really, when you get down to it, mm-hmm. but not just the race, other things about them, because it could be a Korean American, it could be a Mexican American, or, but. Uh, I've never been wrong yet. I've never gotten back fluent English or fuck you or, or even not the language I expect natively. I mean, so am I committing some kind of racecraft here? I think you're being sensible. Hmm. You I'm, know? Not, I'm not being racist by doing this. I'm, I, I do have concerns about this, you know, <laughs> legitimate concerns. You're, you're trying, given the information that you have, to communicate. Hmm. I guess it would be racist if you had some kind of – you were trying to oppress people i don't have that kind of power (laughs) right i mean this i mean what we call racism is the idea that you oppress or think less or lower people you know but like just trying to figure out your the situation in which you can communicate with somebody i think it's a really valuable distinction to make Mm. you know and i think that like whoever says fuck you to you for trying you know that's like it's too much you know (laughs) it certainly doesn't help i mean it also it reminded me of another of another instance where I was waiting in the Los Angeles Times building to meet somebody who worked there. And the guard in the lobby just sort of was like looking sideways at me. And I could just sort of feel him staring at me for a while. And he comes up and he's like, Bonjour? <laughs> and I live here. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't get angry at that. But I mean, that's nobody's exempt from this kind of thing, these assumptions being made, right? No, of course not. And I mean, anybody with, you know, who's, who hasn't been, uh, wounded or, or for whatever reason, this, this lady was so upset at being said, said hello to. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, I read this and I just cause laughing my head off, but, um, you know, you, you just take it with, friendliness right i mean we i think the healthier thing to do would be to assume that anybody who speaks to us is is a person of goodwill until we see otherwise mm. i think that that would be a, a good idea mm. now cord we mentioned you write about race and we've also talked about how this book establishes the non-existence of race like like many other books do given that when you're writing about race what are you writing about 
Because it's not race. It's not the thing that doesn't exist. It's something else called race. What? What is it? I mean, I think that without without using the term, I've been writing about racecraft. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that j- I, I tend to write about the ideas that ha- people have about race in America and the and the baggage that comes along with race. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of my work uh, focuses on um, people's hurt feelings and 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 people. Uh, people feeling scared or people feeling angry because of their race and because of racial mm-hmm. issues. And they, I mean, the, I, I suppose the very dark thing about racecraft is that, is that while it sort of puts forth the idea, and I believe the true idea that race is, is a social construct and race doesn't exist. Race is so deeply entrenched in our society as to be intractable and, and, and what people believe about race and the ideas that people have about race, uh, are here. And I think will be here at least in, I mean, I believe long after I'm dead, unfortunately. Uh, so, so I, I tend to write about, yeah, racecraft, but, but n- never having known that, that some people call it racecraft and, and, uh, and the, all the horrors that go along with it. You mentioned you write about race in America. Now, I'm thinking of some other countries, and I was talking to a Mexican friend recently who was saying, I love my country, but in in my country, they assume that dark people serve light people. Oh, yeah. And that's just, it's not even like, hey, you're racist for thinking that. That's just the way things are accepted to be in Mexico. It's Absolutely. like, of course, that's of course that's how what the hierarchy has, is. And uh, some Korean friends, they'll often say that Korea thinks they don't have racism, like America over there, but they'd be the most racist country in the world if they had other races there, which they don't. (laughs) So, you know, I guess we can say what we will about America's racial problems, of which it has many, but, uh, it seems, it seems worse in other countries in a lot of respects, doesn't it? Um, I don't know if it's worse, but it's definitely present. Uh, I mean, I, I don't ever, I hate to get into the game of, of, you know, who's, who's, who's worse. Yeah, yeah. Like, who's, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I think that my, uh, my father lives in, uh, a brief anecdote. My father lives in Saudi Arabia. Mm. And one time I was over there in 2008, um, visiting him and we went out to, uh, we were in a suit store. We were in a, a tailor's, uh, a tailor's, um, shop and the tailor's Pakistani. And, uh, we walk in. And my father's very dark. My father's a very dark black man. Um, and I am decidedly not. And we're walking around and the tailor comes up to me and he says, like, what can I, what can I help you with? Uh, and we were there because my father wanted to get some shirts made. I was just tagging along. That's because he's I, really handsome. <laughs> <laughs> this is about something entirely different. <laughs> but I said, uh, you know, my, I, I don't really want anything. You, you should talk to my father. He's, he's here to get something. Uh, and the and the man goes, "That's your father?" And he says, "Yeah." And he goes, "I thought he was African." Oh. And he goes, and I, and I was like, "What?" And he goes, "I thought he was an African. I thought you were a British. You're British. You're American, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, but he's my he's my mm-hmm. dad. He's an American too." And this guy was really taken aback. Mm-hmm. And the thing was, he wasn't going to help the African. Like you help mm-hmm. the Brit, you help the American whose whose skin is lighter. Yeah. Are literal Africans common in that part of the world? I don't know. There are some Africans who come there uh, for work. They do mm-hmm. like menial jobs, the way mm-hmm. that uh, many, uh, for instance, many Pakistanis are imported to uh, the Middle East to do a lot of uh, construction jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they they kind of bring them in wholesale, and uh, there is a lot of. Uh, particularly in Saudi Arabia, a lot of slave-like conditions, unfortunately. But but there is um, there is kind of every, every I've traveled around the world a lot. I was in Brazil. Uh, uh, I was in Brazil in early early last year, 
And same thing. They have a dark underclass as well. It just seems like you go around the world and a dark underclass exists nearly everywhere you go. And so I think that it is certainly different in many ways. Uh, but um, I think that, yeah, writing about race um, in America, at least in some instances, you, you, you were speaking to a global issue. Do you think America is maybe more self-conscious about its racism? America, I would say that it's, yeah, I would say that it's to the forefront of people's minds in a way that it isn't in other places. Uh, I was in, I was just in Norway about a month ago, and people certainly don't talk too much about race there because it's so... It's, there's no reason to talk about race there. It's, it's so homogenous. Talking yeah. about water. Yeah, yeah. It's so homogenous. It's just kind of not to the forefront of people's minds. Mm. And to me, that was interesting because I felt really embraced there. Nobody cared. Nobody mm. thought. Nobody thought twice to even talk to me about it. It wasn't even. It wasn't even an issue that came up. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there with uh, two, my brothers and my father, who were also uh, black, and and nobody even mentioned it. You know, everybody called us the Americans. Mm -hmm. Nobody called us the black Americans. It was just like the Americans are here, mm. um, which I found really fascinating. So, but I think that uh, the 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 good thing about America is, despite all of its racism and despite all of the racecraft, is that the melting pot of America has forced people to actually consider this problem deeply and to for people to devote their entire careers and lives to fixing this problem. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I don't ever want to be a black writer, but if you are a black writer and, and that's your calling and you, you write about this all the time, I think more power to you because I think that in many places, people don't think about these issues and people who devote their entire lives to writing about these issues, I think is in a certain way, a, a beautiful, a beautiful work. That's a fair point, but <clears throat> I think it would be, I think, I don't know what you guys think of this and I'd like to, don't you think that like more educated people like all over the world have kind of learned how to distance themselves from especially sort of 19th century ideas of oppression? Like it's sort of the, the goal of the 20th century, I would say this is really idealistic, but too bad. Um, among educated people everywhere is to connect. You know, we've got like a, a way to connect with each other because of the internet and the, the information age has really, really altered our ability to understand each other as equals. And I think that like the sort of project of the 21st century so far could easily be said to be to be leveling all of these differences and just sort of like getting to know each other as as equals in human beings. And I think that there, when you run across people who haven't been educated very well anywhere in the world, you find um, more, this is just a personal observation, you find more violence and, and, and cruelty and less empathy. Mm. I mean, I really kind of think it's a matter of like educating all children really well to be loving, good citizens of the world. And I think, I think it will not go away forever. You know, the problems that are engendered by inequality, but they can be m mitigated with knowledge and love. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, because I, um, I believe this to an extent. A lot of people say this, and I and I believe that there's some truth to it, but I don't think uh, it, it goes. It, it doesn't satisfy the problem for me enough. Uh, what does racecraft say about the growing problem of classism? It's I think it's become kind of um, uh, very trendy nowadays to say that uh, classism is replacing racism, and to a, as I said, to a, to an extent, I believe that to be true. 
But I also think that uh, race is very tied, is, is sort of inextricably linked to class uh, in America and elsewhere. What is what does racecraft say about classism? Does it is, is classism part of racecraft? They um, there's there's one really clear passage about this where they say racecraft is a tool of class oppression. Mm. It's pretty clear, mm. and I mean I I agree with that completely. Mm. But I mean it's kind of like. It's, it's, it's all generic. It's oppression. Oppression is oppression. You know, to mm-hmm. me, it's sort of like you, you want to call it classism. You want to, there's always somebody trying to gain an advantage over those whom he can describe or define as less than himself so that he can make, you know, someone serve. I mean, we have different kinds of slavery now, but we still have it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's slavery in this country. Like every time I read about like the, negotiations in Congress, I just want to put my fist through the wall. It's like they really are trying to make sharecroppers of, of, of people. The, the minimum wage here is like half what it is, you know, in, in Scandinavian countries. There's like one horrible fact after another about economic oppression. Then you see these guys who are living lives of absolutely lacola and disgusting excess. It's like, you know, in order to become horrible, Let's oppress people so that we can become like incredibly horrible in a private jet. Like, okay, that's the plan. (laughs) It's really disturbing. But anyway, yeah, it's the fields that seem to sort of see it as just one more tool in the arsenal of like the oppression that human beings have always, you know, it's, it's, they've always visited on each other. You know, finally, since this is the Los Angeles Review of Books, I wanted to touch on, we, we all live in Los Angeles, one of the most diverse cities in the world, and one of the largest. And film and television, you know, they make, they've always made a big deal about race relations here, like whether they're especially bad or especially tragic, and there's many historical instances to point to of, that bolster that idea. But I also feel like here, if you're racist, you kind of are, you have to be so rich that you can be, you, that you never leave your house or just be totally non-functional. Like a racist can't really have a life in Los Angeles because there's too many races you really do have to deal with. New York is probably more like that to an extent. But what do you think about here? Is, is our experience different in Los Angeles? Oh, well, you, when you say Los Angeles, you're meaning like, you know, east of La Cienega Boulevard. I, I mean the whole, <laughs> I mean the 500 square miles. Because there's quite a bit west of La Cienega Boulevard. <laughs> no, I've never been over there. <laughs> I mean, I know. Mar incognita. I, I know. I know a lot of people who won't come, you know. They won't come from, they won't cross La Cienega, the Great Divide? Yeah. Oh, and why not? I mean, I used to. They're afraid. They're afraid of the inner city. I'm not kidding. That's a real thing. I mean, there are people that like, you know, that, that whole like super far west, the uh, Palisades, you know, like uh, you, you will not see anybody who is not white, who is not cutting the grass. Yeah, but who really needs to go to the Palisades? He doesn't live there already. You know, I mean, that's kind of a marginal place ultimately in its own way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are people who are looking to wall themselves off. Mm. There are people who will send their children only to private schools. And this is what happens. I mean, I had friends who are spending 40000 a year to send a kid to school to make them afraid of black people. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so what are you doing? Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. So, yeah, I think there, the isolationism here is far less than in many places. And I love it here. And it really is diverse. And, and I, I, too, live in Koreatown, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I really love the the fact that where i live 
I mean, there, you, there's no, the guy across the street from me is a Philip, from the Philippines, this really nice family, and there's Asian families, and there's white families, and there's black families, and everybody all lives in the same place, and you can't say it's this kind of neighborhood, and that's mm-hmm. what I love about it, kind of almost the most. I think that, it, for me, the only, um, I, I believe I agree with much of what you're saying, but I will say that isolationism, um, for me is very obvious in how few black people I will interact with mm-hmm. compared to how many black people I will interact with when I'm in uh, New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's sort of very striking to me. It's, uh, I live in silver Lake. I'm in silver Lake and echo park mm-hmm. and Los Feliz a lot. And the dearth of blacks that are in those neighborhoods that I sort of sort of my neighborhoods, uh, is very obvious. And, and I think that if you're paying attention, it's kind of very striking. Um, and all, and it's not, it's not as if those areas lack diversity. There is a whole bunch of Latino families in my neighborhood. There's a whole bunch of Latino families, uh, in Echo Park, obviously. Um, there's, uh, whites from all over and then there's some Asians, but it is really clear to me that, that sort of the areas that I hang out in, mm-hmm. there's no black people. What and, about like LeVert Park and Baldwin Hills? Oh, absolutely. But I'm just saying but, that's, but that I mean, to I'm me saying, is the, what about that? Like, what about when you, you have a marginalized group and then they all decide to go live in the same place with each other? Yeah. I mean, is that, is, I don't know. Like I was writing a piece on LeVert Park last week. It's funny you bring it up, but yeah, there's, it's not like, <coughs> I definitely, I did actually hear a kid say, look at that white guy. But I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not if we're threatening. I mean, it's, 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 it gives me less pause that there's no whites there that then there's, that there's no non-blacks. You know, you know what I mean? You don't, you don't want to see a monoculture necessarily no matter what. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, don't know. I think, I think that, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I don't, I, like ethnic enclaves have always been interesting to me, but that's because I've never been interested in my adult life and being part of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I've never, it seems so unappealing to me to live amongst a bunch of people who look exactly like me. Mm -hmm. And I can understand the reasons why you would do that. I get that. Like there's, I mean, there are so many reasons why a group of people like black people, it's comforting. And, and, And yeah, and not only to them, but like black people deal with a lot of nonsense and black people have been historically beaten down and oppressed and, and people walk up to black people on the street and call them names. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is stuff that has happened, uh, to, to my parents, you know, to my father, this happened to him. My father remembers a time when, uh, when he wasn't allowed to drink from the same water fountain, you know? And so for blacks to sort of have that understanding of history and to choose to live amongst other blacks because other blacks can understand that sense of, have that sense of history as well. Mm-hmm. makes sense. It's fair, right? That yeah. kind of, in, on the one hand, that makes sense. On the other hand, I kind of see Lamert Park and the Palisades as totally equivalent. Mm-hmm. Like people who just want to be with people who are just like them. I mean, on the one hand, I've got like total sympathy with everybody living exactly how they want to live. They should just go ahead. Like, you know, why shouldn't they? And, and I think that's right, but I will say that I think it's more fun and more interesting and, and like cooler for me to be around a bazillion different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. I just think it's beneficial, beneficial for my children raising them and, and so on. But I really hesitate to say, and I would love to know what the doctor's fields would say about the, um, that sort of, is it is it all right? That sort of comforting, like you know, sort of withdrawing, like circling the wagons, so we can all live together with people who are just like us. I mean, is there really something wrong with that or not? I don't know. 
I I mean, I think that... Did you ever read that piece I wrote for Book Forum about that, uh, mm-hmm. about the Black Panther book? No, tell. Uh, I, 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 I just sort of did the, you know, how they have the essayistic reviews of this, of this mm-hmm. deep, deep history of, of the Black Panther movement. And to me, what stood out about the Black Panthers, the more that I, the more that I read it and I had never considered it, is that the Black Panthers, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if, if listeners will have heard, but, um, Growing up, there's there's a lot of discussion, and when you talk to people about race, there's a lot of discussion as, as to what blacks can learn from Jews. Um, black Jews are this oppressed oppressed group as well, um, and they've been historically beaten down throughout the world, throughout the course of world history, many different times, um, and in awful ways. Um, and so, there's almost this sense of shared history with the black community uh, mm-hmm. in a certain way. And there's a certain statelessness there, at least before, before the creation of Israel, there's a certain statelessness there as kind of, uh, this black and Jewish diaspora, like traveled around mm-hmm. the world. Um, and so to me, the black Panthers, when, when you grow up and people say, you know, what can blacks learn from Jews? I think that that's code for the Jews have learned to be, um, kind of insular. And they, they build communities and they live amongst each other and they spend money in their own communities and they sort of, uh, build wealth and build, build these successful, flourishing neighborhoods. Um, whereas blacks, many of them during the civil rights era, the black movement was to integrate. We want to be a part of you. You know, we want to be a part of this. We want to share the same schools as you. Whereas Jewish communities said, you know what? We're fine over here. And we don't necessarily need to integrate, and that isn't that isn't our movement. Um, and so, when people said, "What can blacks learn from Jews?" If it's that sense of clannishness, the the Black Panthers did that, and that's what I sort of looked at. The more that I read the book, I didn't realize the depth of the of the free programs that the Black Panthers had. And they had a free breakfast program. They had their own schools. They had their own health care. They had they had busing uh, to to take people to jails to visit their relatives in jail. Like there was this huge self reliance. They were policing their own neighborhoods. Obviously, you know, they were arming themselves, and they were doing um, what what people said blacks should do is to learn from the Jews, be clannish, and and sort of work within your own communities, and you will prosper. And the Black Panthers did that. And when they did that, the government killed them or prosecuted them or sabotaged the entire thing and told them that this is what you're doing is wrong. This is, uh, I think, I think, uh, J. Edgar Hoover called it insidious poison. He called, he called the free breakfast program for children in the Black Panther, from the Black Panthers insidious poison because they're poisoning these kids' minds and making them believe all this nonsense. Like Obamacare and socialism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, exactly. what are you talking about? It's so crazy. Well, I'll say this. <coughs> we have progressed enough, at least, that my daughter uh, went to school. She's like um, graduating from Overland this year. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. She, I know. Yay me. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so great. Well, yay her, really. But anyway. She went to school from grade six to twelve at um, Laces, which is a really great as magnet school, um, kind of in the Pico um, area, like it's near Little Ethiopia, yeah, kind of mm-hmm. exactly, and which is another good illustration of the kind of diversity we have here, Little Ethiopia. <laughs> and she, her, her best friends were blacks and Jews mm-hmm. and white kids. And I just loved, you know, like on the weekends, like that school is so integrated, like the whole, it was the first magnet and that the sort of theme of it is like college preparation. That's it. 
you know? And it's like, um, mandated to be a racially diverse along the same lines as the population that it lives, you know, in that, in the city. And so I think it's like 30% African American, like 20% Asian. I don't know. I don't really remember. Anyway, it's always a complete like melting pot. And, it, you know, I was able to enjoy a thing that I think a lot of people would really like if they could try it, which is like when you have your kids at the weekend and they go to the school with a bazillion different kinds of people and it's somebody's birthday and they all come over and there's so many different kinds of people and food and music and stuff to learn about. You know, it's like we've made some progress mm. a little bit and I, I, I'm a, I'm a believer in, in integration, you know, and I think that to me, a question that I have uh, that I guess especially goes along with the book, how does one, and I think that I'm sort of moving there and I'm, I'm coming to these conclusions on my own, but how, how do you think being raised in America, how do you think you were able to, and, and from a different generation for me, how do you think you were able to move past race? You know, how, how do you, how do you, I, I'm always fascinated by people who are able to get outside of that mentality, especially, especially people who are older than me when it's, it is such a powerful force. It's, it's, uh, for instance, my mother, uh, my mother's, my grandparents were deeply, deeply racist people. They disowned my mother when she married my father. And I'm fascinated that, that, that I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated that my mother was able to move past that. I don't know how people get past that. I, how, how did you move past it? I think you're, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know your mom, but I'm guessing that she's, she's exactly the person who could because like when you suffer yourself from, I mean, not that I was a very oppressed person. I was not, but you can tell it's somebody else's problem. I mean, if somebody's going to disown you because of who you love, they're clearly crazy, <laughs> you know, like there's deeply something wrong <laughs> with these people. Yeah. I mean, you no longer have a question in your mind as to who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think I was lucky like myself that way, you know, just being a really curious, inquisitive person and like meeting a million zillion different kinds of people and sort of understanding that the whole thing was nonsense, you know, mm -hmm. because like I went to, I'm the first person in my family born in this country so I grew up in a very sort of Latino environment, neighborhood, whatever. And I always felt like there were certain rules and ideas and attitudes and behavior that was expected there. And this whole other thing was expected in the other place where I went to school. And I identified a lot with my schoolmates and, and I was very keen on school and I loved reading. I was really like very bookish kid. So it was kind of like, I, I think if it was going to be one thing, it was it would be a, a, a total, like, absolutely bone-deep, abiding love of reading mm -hmm. that m made... You're not, the first, you're not the first person I've heard say that, actually. Yeah. yeah, you know, because that's what reading is for, is for empathy. Mm -hmm. And so you don't... You, you, your own life seems just like one tiny part of a much bigger, more important panorama of... of things that are happening and have happened. You just see yourself as one. Your story is just one tiny part of a much bigger one. Mm -hmm. I think that might be it. Clearly. I, I think a lot of people that many of the, many of the most together with it. I mean, the fields is themselves like they're from the South, you know, mm -hmm. they, they saw the thing up close and personal. So they're in a position to say what bullshit it is Yeah, more than most people. I would think. Yeah. 
There's that too. Absolutely. I've been speaking here on the Los Angeles Review of Books Couch with Maria Bustios, whose new piece on racecraft you can read in the Los Angeles Review of Books print quarterly, and Cord Jefferson, who is the West Coast editor of Gawker. Cord, Maria, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. It was me. fun. Yeah, really enjoyed it. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Stay tuned. More on the way. Don't hit stop. The Arizona Renaissance Festival may not be the most representative example as far as Rachel Lee Rubin's counterculture thesis is concerned. There are few places less obviously countercultural than Phoenix, Arizona. That's not quite fair, I admit, to the many weirdos who have made the desert their home, but the overwhelming experience of Phoenix, a satellite campus of Southern California without the light from starlets, is one of endless consumer creep, blinding heat, inexplicable lawns, palm trees, Ikeas, casinos, gas stations, football, roads, malls, roads, malls, roads. Phoenix, like Las Vegas, like Los Angeles, projects a powerful fantasy, that of unlimited possibility, utterly disconnected from the environmental realities of the West's rapidly depleting water. If you arrive at the Renaissance Fair via the Phoenix Interstate, you'll see exactly what I mean. It's spotless, lovely, white, weirdly green, sprawled, traffic-jammed, hot-asphalted, and spiritually bereft. But if you travel the back route from Tucson, you'll get a different experience. One of great speeds, desert lilies and cactus forests, a relative wildness modulated by the occasional development. Then you'll pass through Florence, Arizona, home to nine county, state, federal, and private prisons, and host to the yearly Country Thunder Festival. Hop on US 60, and out of nowhere, from all this flatness, the festival ariseth, and there is mucho parking to be had for free, courtesy as giant banners remind us of local grocery chain fries. We park my Subaru in the nave row by the exit just in case we need to leave early. If you've been to a fair in the last decade, you pretty much know what it's like inside. Plenty of stuff to buy, including frozen princess lattes and turkey legs and other meats on sticks. Plenty of beer and medieval margaritas. Probably too much mead to really be good for anyone. Lots of fairy princess regalia to fit all comers plastic computer dragons, and, if you look a little more closely, plenty of BDSM stuff buried a little further back in the leather shops. Aware there's a whip, there's a way display, just below the fur-lined handcuffs, for instance. There are a lot of swords, a few improbable chainmail bikinis you might remember from viewings of schlock 80s films like Red Sonia or the covers of fantasy novels, places with names like The Horn Shop, which sells horns for drinking, blowing, and combination. Scads of fat kids, scantily clad teens, a large proportion of people dressed like pirates, jousting funnel cakes, maybe jousting four funnel cakes, some kind of doubtfully medieval-themed nachos, a couple dressed up as garden gnomes, falconry, rides, games, tests of skill, cleavage displayed by anyone with half a boob to boost up and display, Heraldry, courtliness, staves, knaves, sad imprisoned hawks and owls, and ATM after ATM to facilitate your hunger for more of it, whatever it is that you're looking for more of here. 
though an amusing sign, conscious of its anachronism, claims, we accept Lady Visa and Master of the Card. Cash is preferred. In America, and certainly in Phoenix, we do love a spectacle, not to mention a frozen princess latte. Clearly, many of us are here just for the spectacle. All these patrons, these playing patrons, all these people. If this many people come out to see something, then we should come and see it too. But the real appeal of the fair appears to be the opportunity it affords for role-playing. For an afternoon, you may choose to discard your regular life, put on the garb, and party like it's thirteen ninety-nine. Sure, it's stratified. Know your place, vassal. Of course, though we prefer to think otherwise, our ordinary lives are stratified too. How recently have you dined with royalty, or with a Hollywood star, or a Pulitzer Prize winner, or the president? Here you can, kind of, at the pleasure feast, twice daily at noon and 2.30 p.m. for sixty-nine ninety-five if you purchase tickets in advance. A lot of Americans obviously like to role-play, and not just in the bedroom, If you count computer and video games and tabletop RPGs, or if you look at what you do on your smartphone when in the post office line or driving, or driving and texting, or just texting, there are a whole lot of us who enjoy disappearing into a character. And reading fiction is a kind of role-playing, too. Sure, we can't always control the characters, let alone the plot, but the best novels involve us via a deep and prolonged identification that is very much like playing a role. And how else do sports work, if not via a kind of imaginative identity transfer? It's not as if rooting for the Green Knight in a joust is much different than cheering for the Crimson Tide as they uproot and steamroll Notre Dame. In all these pursuits, we lose ourselves, if we're lucky, for a moment. And in the clash, we can feel alive by proxy. It's hot. We enter through the gate. I feel alive just inside the door when we see a giant treant, that is, a huge living speaking tree. Here I'm using the D&D term, though Tolkien calls them ants. And it stretches its huge tree branch arms to encircle a teen. A sign tells us he is called the Green Man. We have stepped out of the real world. You've just heard Ander Monson reading from a piece you can read in full in the debut issue of the new quarterly journal from the Los Angeles Review of Books, now in print, on its way to bookstores and large members nationwide. For the Los Angeles Review of Books, I've been Colin Marshall. For more information, visit lareviewofbooks.org. And for more from me, visit colinmarshall.org. Thanks.